Well, we're in uh, chapter 8 of Isaiah. I'm going to back up here to verse 13. We kind of closed with that last week. And how the time flies. I believe my numbers are correct that uh, there's only 67 days till spring. Well, it's okay. You can snow all it wants to. It'll melt. <laughs> okay. Verse 13 says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. We must view God as the Lord of hosts, who has all power in his hand, and rules over all creatures. So he can call on them at any time to bring them to assist us, removing our needless, troubling fears, removing them properly. Viewing him as the holy God he is and sanctifying his name, giving him all the glory he is due. We let him be our fear when we give him our full reverence and stand or kneel or fall flat on our face in front of him in awe of his holy sovereignty. When we are afraid to displease him and do all we can to absolutely Obey him. The world, including perhaps some of our close relatives or friends, probably will not understand your lack of fear and worry when they know you're facing a situation that they would find terrifying. They won't understand it. Especially when you are trusting in God for his solution. First Peter chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But... The face of the Lord is, is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. How oh, I think of it. Tim? Excuse the interruption here. Yeah? Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, 
And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Many have asked Jesus into their hearts to avoid going to hell. Going to hell for their sins. And these words of Jesus are a reminder of that blessed assurance we have by faith in him. How terribly frightening our lives would be without Jesus. I just can't imagine, after walking for 40 years with Jesus, I can't imagine what it would be like without him. Verses 14 and 15 tell us, And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many of them, among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Worshiping, worshiping God and following both his commands and his offering of safety Safety in the sanctuary of his presence in their lives would only be understood by a few, a remnant. The rest would stumble over his gracious offer and fall miserably. Not just the people, but even more the whole kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Isaiah foresaw that the greatest part of the two kingdoms would not sanctify the Lord of hosts. And for them, God would be a terror. While for those that trusted him, he would be their strength and safety. Those that would not listen to God or will not listen to God now will stumble and fall both into sin and into ruin. They would fall to the sword or be taken prisoner or go into captivity. Will someone please read uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10.
If you think back to when you first were saved and you think of how your whole view of life changed. I was talking with Pastor Susil just a few minutes ago. And it's so hard, it's so hard even now to believe that God could love me like he does. He's the only one that really knows me. He alone knows what the first 40 years were like. And yet, yet he loves me. And it's interesting, you always think of the builders and the stone that they disallowed. Who was Christ? Who was the cornerstone of the church? And I read just recently that we must look at ourselves also as stones. Built onto that cornerstone, we each become parts, figuratively, of the church. I, had, I hadn't realized that before this week. I never thought of it in that context. But not only is Christ the cornerstone, but we, the believers, are stones in the church also. Verse 16 tells us, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. This prophecy given Isaiah by God is such an important divine revelation as, as other, the other prophecies also. But God instructs Isaiah to preserve it by including it in the sacred oracles of his chosen people, the writings that were to become his holy word, the Holy Bible. Some of the people faithfully passed on these words from generation to generation. And as a result, we have today the book of the prophet Isaiah. Each of us need to accept the responsibility of passing the word of God onto our children and our grandchildren. The whole word of God is preserved for the comfort of God's people in the approaching times of trouble and distress. For them, just as it is for us, as a testimony, it directs our faith 
And as a law, it directs our practice of observing that law. And we need to observe the truth of it and submit to the precepts of the law, binding up and sealing both the testimony and the law means we are not to add to them or diminish from them. This letter to Israel and to us from God is preserved for the New Testament times in which so many of the prophecies came true in the person of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. 17, and I wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Isaiah knew that although God seemed to be hiding his face from those that had turned their backs on him, but he did not turn their backs on him, a remnant, those that heard and obeyed God and his commandments, would be preserved because they observed the law and this testimony. They had the assurance and the comfort of knowing the words of the prophets that would carry them by faith through the many discouragements they met with. And indeed, as we read, they would meet with many discouragements in the future. Pastors can best recommend the word of God to others when they themselves have found the satisfaction of relying on God's word. Can you imagine the difficult time Pastor Schott and Pastor Sousa would have bringing us, their sheep, God's holy word, if they were not as strong in their faith and reliance on God's word themselves. We need to constantly, daily, thank God for our pastors and for their demonstrated faith and love for all of us as our shepherd. If he was here, we would say thank you, Pastor Schott. Thank you, Pastor Susan. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. The disappointment and even at times the discouragement that Isaiah probably felt because God was frowning on his people the very people Isaiah was called to prophesy to and that he cared for and loved so deeply. Still, it's, it's no wonder that God hid his face from the house of Jacob that had forsaken him. You remember that Jesus on the cross, when he had taken on himself our sins, Sins so wicked, so wicked to God that he turned his back, hid his face from Jesus, 
and caused darkness to fall on the earth. Is it any wonder that Jesus cried out then, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Isaiah felt some of that same grief over the futures for his people and the nation that they were to experience. The same that Jesus experienced on our behalf. I might mention here that I feel very strongly that when Jesus prayed in the garden, as recorded in Matthew 26, verse 42, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. I believe he was not referring to the physical torment he would soon be going through, which many, many others had also suffered being likewise crucified. But the pros prospect that for him, the only time in all time, he and his father would not be one because God could not look upon our sin. Our sin separated Jesus from his father until the time when he was once more glorified following his resurrection. We did that to him. Excuse me. Isaiah also encountered the contempt and reproaches of men on himself, on his children, and on his his few followers because of their relationship with God and because of their faith in his words. Unknowing, unfaithful children of God, children of the promise, ridiculed the prophet and his children because they were unwelcome signs to them. No one who was in any way, who has in any way defied God, wants to be confronted with the truth. Unless in their hearts they are repentant and desire to return to that right relationship with Almighty God, a relationship that they had enjoyed prior to sinning. That's probably the greatest defining characteristic of a Christian that I can think of, that they can be forgiven. In fact, have already been forgiven. You think about that. Our greatest characteristic is in knowing that we are forgiven What a thing to be, to rejoice about. How many of us 
of people in our lives that we have not forgiven. That's scary. We want to be forgiven, but I can never forgive him. We hear that. And then the other thing we hear often is, well, I can forgive him, but I will never forget. I believe that's called an oxymoron. They do not make sense together. Like as Isaiah, we parents, those of us who are our parents, must always look upon our children and grandchildren as God's gifts, his gracious gifts. Pastors, ministers, evangelists, and even teachers must look upon our converts as being as dear as our own children and be tender them, tender to them as we are with our children. Remembering that whatever God, whatever good we can accomplish with and by them is because of the grace of God, not us or our efforts. Nothing we can do with our children or grandchildren or people that we've had a hand in converting. Nothing we can do will compare to what God's doing with us. Jesus looked upon his disciples and followers, in fact, all who believed in him as his children. Children that God the Father had given him. You notice he doesn't, he doesn't take credit for reaching out for any of us. Jesus looks at us as a gift from God the Father. In John 17, 6, Jesus tells us in his prayer in the garden, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. It's amazing to me that even Jesus gives credit to his Father for the gift of his followers, of his children, of you and me. Isaiah found encouragement in the fact that the hand of God was upon everything, and he kept his eye on that truth. He knew that everything troubling the house of Jacob came upon that house because God was hiding his face from them. And whatever contempt they were facing was from the Lord of hosts. 
Isaiah saw God dwelling in Mount Zion and there manifesting himself to his people, ready to hear their prayers and receive their homage, their praise, and their worship. Though he was hiding his face from them at the present time, they knew where to find him. And finding him, they could recover their relationship with him. And because of this, Isaiah resolved to wait upon the Lord, to look for him and obey him even when he hid his face from the house of Jacob. Even when it seems that God is hiding his face from us, we know he's there. We know we can reach him. You know he's waiting to hear from us. No matter what our circumstances might be, we are also to wait upon the Lord by, leaving, by believing his word with prayer and thereby have hope and faith and find true joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy that comes from being close to him strengthens me. I used to think that that verse, the joy of the Lord is my strength, I used to think that meant if I make God happy, I'll be strong. Uh-uh. Then I found, and I don't remember the verse in Scripture, there I found that being close to God was our joy. It wasn't being funny and making him smile or laugh. It wasn't doing what he told me to do. It was being close to him. My daily prayer and I have to confess I should make it my daily prayer for all of us is that each day we'll all grow closer to him. When I, when I sit down to, to prepare these lessons, I pray first of all and ask him to show me more about him. I want to know him better. I want to be closer to him every day. That's kind of in preparation for the day when I awaken in his presence. And when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? Saul in 1 Samuel 28, 15 appealed to the witch of Endor and Ahaziah appealed to the God of Ekron. Both of those, you'll find that in 2 Kings 
chapter 1, verse 2. These both exhibited strange gestures, both of those, the witch and the, and the god of Ekron, exhibited strange gestures and tones when talking. Isaiah says that they peeped and muttered, meaning that they muffled or covered their heads so they could not see or be seen, at least not clearly. But they peeped and were peeped at. Or their voices and their words and their manner of speaking was such that using very low, hollow, broken sounds, they were not articulate. And often spoke in a bird-like tone, like the cooing of a dove. They did not speak boldly and in plain terms. Like God's prophets, But many turn to the mysterious mediums and seers that use spells and charms, pretending to tell fortunes, cure diseases, find lost items, solve crimes, and visions. Today, I believe there are still many that follow TV programs depicting faith healers. Long Island mediums, the dependence on crystals and moonstones. That's just to name a few. Some would-be Christians are enticed to follow some of these same objects and or false teachings. I'm sad to say I've met Christians that were, or even are, superstitious. Should not a people seek their God? It is one of the very principles of our religion, or at least it should be, that we seek God. Jehovah is our God. And therefore, we ought to seek him, listen to him, and not go to strange or familiar spirits. I've also found in my experience with work-oriented converts that many of them get caught up in what they see as a newfound spirituality and are prone to following ideas and spiritual leaders without taking the time and effort to understand what God has to say about such things. It's been very difficult, in fact, often futile, to convince them of being misguided in their convictions. These convictions that are clearly unbiblical to my understanding my understanding of God's word and his teachings. I desperately try in my Christian walk not to come across as being judgmental. Instead, I try to show by example and by leaning on God's holy word 
how our Creator intends for us to live in our relationship with Him. It's very difficult at times, especially for someone who has some of the military training I do that wants to grab them by the throat and say, listen. <laughs> but the, uh, what I try to do is let it be. I'll say, you know, you can, you can believe that if you want to. But here's what I believe. And be willing to show them why I believe, because the word is here. God's word. I wish I could say I always control myself that well, but I know he's forgiven me. Some in Isaiah's day, and maybe in our day also, turn to idols and icons in the hope and expectation of receiving blessings and direction and protection from you're looking for protection from inanimate objects even from the dead how absurd to think the dead can do anything for anyone as I read earlier the dead are dead I have a good friend that regularly and religiously spends time at the cemetery talking to his dead wife about what's going on in his life and in the world. I can't, and I won't even try to tell him how futile this practice is because I don't want to lose his friendship, which I cherish. His religion apparently condones and perhaps encourages such a practice. Ecclesiastes, which I, I read often and I recommend to you, take the time every now and then, aside from your other Bible study, and read Ecclesiastes. And just listen to what he says. In Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 6 says, For the living know that they shall die. Anyone here has a promise not to die? Okay. But the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy. All these are now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Please don't think that I am saying that our memories of the dearly departed are not proper. Speaking for myself, I certainly have such fond memories of my parents and grandparents. It's just that those memories 
should be encouragers for us to live out our time as God so lovingly directs us. I told you last week how when dad died, I being a junior, mom asked me if I wanted to, if I was going to drop the junior after my name. And after thinking about it, I said, no. Because every time I sign my name, I remember my dad and the love we shared with each other. I see by the clock that I'm two minutes over here. Rather than ask you for your prayer concerns, I'm going to ask those that have a prayer concern if they'd be willing to pray at this time. And we'll go around whoever wishes to wishes to pray. Well, silently if you want to, or you can, you can pray so that we can all hear. God, God hears us either way.